Hello, everybody. Welcome to a brand new edition of the Selvia's Godcast. I am TJ Zuppi. He is Zach Meisel. You can find us on Twitter at TJ Zuppi, at Zach Meisel, at Selvia's Godcast. And of course, you could subscribe to the show, Apple Podcasts, Google Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you happen to find your podcasts. What is up, brother? Just cannot decide if I should draft Joe Mixon or Josh Jacobs. What would you do? I would definitely go Jacobs without question, without hesitation. I'd run to that podium or virtual podium in this case and make that pick. You were just laying out your fantasy footballers and I realized I don't know any football players anymore. If you dropped me into a fantasy league right now, I would officially be the worst player in the league that you could absolutely take advantage of. So if you'd like to send me your invites right now, I will accept them. I feel like a lot of that is video games, though. Like, I knew the league so much better when I used to play Madden back in the day. But now I couldn't name... I could barely name any like defensive players on any t- other teams other than the Browns. But back in the day, in my Madden heyday in middle school, I could tell you who the Philadelphia Eagles' third-string left guard was. There was a time where I would actually input college players in NCAA football, their, their names. Because this was before, well, this is when the game was actually a thing. And it was before you could just stream on the internet and get the rosters that way and plug them in. You had to f- manually input players' names, and I would do that. I was ridiculous. But, man, those were the days, you know? Yeah. Like, when you pull off a big trade in Madden or an MVP Baseball 2005, the greatest video game ever invented. Who didn't love recruiting in NCAA? Yeah. Uh, just get the game over with. Who cares? Let's get back to recruiting. I would have more fun with the roster maneuvering than I would actually playing the game. It was 100%. Alright, so we are a little bit removed from the Indians making some roster moves of their own, which we talked about at length in our last podcast. We've had some time to let that marinate and the Indians are still playing well. Still have a lot of the same issues that we've talked about offensively. But they still have a really good Shane Bieber. I know um, we've talked about it before. You know, There are times where he's just not at his best and even in his most recent outing on Sunday, he was not at his best. But Shane Bieber just continues to, to roll along, striking out 10 guys. And I see fans on Twitter saying, well, he did run into jams in the fourth and fifth inning. So uh, how good is this guy, actually? <laughs> That's how spoiled we've all gotten watching this man pitch. So it's been three consecutive outings where post-game, he has not been thrilled with his performance, um, where he's he spent more time talking about what didn't feel right, what he could do better. Three consecutive starts. You know what his ERA is in those three starts? It's 159, okay? He's given up 10 hits in 17 innings, 29 strikeouts in 17 innings. Yes, eight walks, but his on-base percentage allowed is still only 261 in those three starts. His OPS allowed 441. So we're talking about a segment of his season where he has not been happy with how he's pitched and he is holding opposing hitters to a pitcher-like slash line. So uh, if that gives you any indication as to to how his season has gone, um, I don't know that there's a better way to frame it than to say that he's pissed that he's pitched really, really well the last three outings. I know you were the first that I heard mention the the Bieber MVP conversation. The more you look at it, the more it's 
I mean, it's still a legitimate thing, and it's a shorter season, so he doesn't have to do it as long as he would in a regular year where he's going to get 33 starts. I know the Indians are now tweeting about it, and they're trying to build a narrative that he should be the MVP. I still think that's pretty far-fetched that the voters are going to go in that direction. There's a lot of people that... I don't think they, they like handing a pitcher the MVP, but this is a weird year. It's 2020. This is, this is the year to do things outside the norm. Are you still on the Bieber MVP train here? Well, I need to figure that out pretty soon because um, I think I've got an MVP vote again. Um, I don't know. I, I normally am against that. I normally keep it to position players, um, but this isn't normal. <laughs> this is a 60-game season. I think you can look at it one way and say it's going to be difficult for position players to differentiate themselves. You know, if you have... Of, eight to ten guys who have pretty impressive slash lines, but it's not as impressive as you normally see in 162 games. There's going to be, you know, Mike Trout's not going to have 10 war, and nobody's going to hit 60 home runs. And you're and, not going to have that guy that's been doing this for 30 years just sorting the column by RBI and handing out his, his award that way. He's not going to know what to do. Nobody has 100 RBI. I don't know who had a good year. Yeah, I mean, the, it, it's very difficult to determine just an MVP vote based on just if you just kept it to position players. Um, this is a really hard year to do that. And so I, my original case for, you know, even just saying, Hey, I wonder if Shane Beaver should be in the MVP consideration was a lot of it was because of that was because Bieber has been so much better than everybody else that even though he's only going to appear in probably what, 12, 13 games, like he has made a difference. There's a reason why they're eight and one in those games. And the one game they lost was a pathetic effort against the Royals where they scored one run. Bieber gave up one hit in six scoreless innings. So, I mean, they should be nine and zero in his nine starts. And, you know, at least you can point to those things instead of, oh, this guy is hitting 340 with a 940 OPS and has, you know, three war, like, that's slightly better than the guy who has 2.9 war. Like it's, it's easy to make a, it's easier to make a case for Bieber, I think, than it's going to be for everybody else. But he's got to keep it up to this ridiculous level for the rest of the season, and that is going to be difficult to do. No more 1.5 ERAs over three starts or whatever the hell it is. Can't do that anymore. <laughs> to be fair, his ERA did balloon to 125. <laughs> After a start on Sunday, it 120, was 120. 125 ERA, 157 FIP, and the FIP is fueled by the strikeouts, of course, and, and typically doesn't walk a lot of guys, although recently, as you pointed to, we've seen the command wane a bit, at least by his standards. War is not the, the be-all, end-all for evaluating players. It's a good starting point, I think, though, to see who had a good year, and then maybe you look who's within... Uh, one win of each other, and maybe try to break those players down as best you can. But it, as far as the Ward leaderboard over at, at Fangraphs goes, 2.7 WAR leads the chase in the American League among pitchers, and it leads the the chase among position players too. I know that there's a, a segment of, of of voters, and I would probably be someone that constantly wrestles with this question that tries to grapple. How much impact does a pitcher have compared to a position player when the pitcher is appearing once every five days? 
compared to a position player who's playing every single day. And so you think the guy that plays every single day has more of an impact, the ability to win those games. But if you think about it another way, how many chances does a position player get to actually leave his, his fingerprints on the game? With an at-bat four, maybe five times? For a pitcher, they impact every single pitch in the one game that they appear in. So what is more important? The guy that has three to four chances offensively and maybe a couple of chances defensively to save a game every single day? Or the guy that has the greatest chance to win the one game that he pitches in? What's more important? Yeah, I mean, so let, I'm looking at the American League leaderboard for position players. And, like, Anthony Rendon leads in war, and he's got a really, really good slash line. But also he, like, first of all, I think Trout is second, and I think you'd side with Trout. His numbers are, even though he's got less war, it's, his numbers are better across the board. Um, you also, yeah, the I think, would get... the difference between a tenth of a win is... Yeah. Negligible. And you also are going to get a lot of people who would say, okay, well, I'm not going to vote for someone who's on a shitty team. Like the Angels probably aren't going to playoffs, and everybody's going to playoffs this year. So you're going to get a lot of people who, and I know Trout has won a few MVPs or a couple MVPs despite that, but I think there are always going to be people who don't want to give an MVP award to a, a team that's, you know, not very good. Um, you know, next would be Tim Anderson and his, he's hitting 351. Like he's been great. Um, is he an MVP? I don't know. It's tough to differentiate. Like between him and Nelson Cruz's numbers are also very good. And Luis Robert is up there. You've got Kyle Lewis, the rookie on the Mariners who's hit well. Like these are the names on the leaderboard and it's tough. Like I would say Trout's numbers probably look the best. But if you're not going to go with Trout, I don't know how you differentiate between all of the other players. And to me, it's it's like if you're if you would even consider putting a pitcher in your you have to vote for ten players. If you consider putting a pitcher on there, don't you have to put Bieber? Like, how do you put? Do you put Bieber seventh? Is he like behind Luis Robert? But ahead of Teoscar yeah, Hernandez. I've always like, find that weird. If you're willing yeah. to give him a MVP vote at all, then he should be it sh it should be a legitimate conversation, not just well I'm going to put him somewhere between 6th and 7th. That was that's always weird for me to try to reconcile that. When I vote have had this vote in the past, I've tried to just create tiers where it's like usually you know first place is going to go to maybe like two guys, maybe three. But then you know that's going to be your one, two, or your one, two, three. Then there's a second tier, guys who are in the middle. And then you have like a list of 20 guys who are vying for the last few spots. Well, it's simple to do that in a normal season because 162 games creates enough of a sample size to say like, hey, Trout and Bregman were head and shoulders above everybody else. So I know if I'm going to include some dominant pitcher... Like, they're not going to be between Trout and Bregman. Maybe they would be between those two and whoever's third. Um, or between Tier 2 and Tier 3. This year, I feel like everybody is the same tier. I don't know how you're going to, to find a, an easy spot to plug a pitcher in. So this is, yeah. this is tough. And I think it's a legitimate conversation 
for the first time in, in quite a while. Yeah. Well, I mean, to for this to happen, a lot does have to take place. The pitcher has to be out of this world, which compared to his competition this year in the American League, Bieber has absolutely been out of this world. Heads and tails better. Th- I mean, he's almost a full win over at the Fangraphs leaderboard. Better than everybody else in the American League pitcher-wise. So that meets one qualification. But I think you have to get that second part, too, that you're talking about, that there's there's just no position player that's having so good of a year that you can't deny him, or at least one or two that you can't deny him. They all have to sort of look the same. The problem, I think, here, if you're trying to build a case, is if, if Mike Trout is leading the position players uh, once again, he's always going to have that narrative now because he's been built up as the best player in baseball. So how do you remove that from the equation? And if he continues to charge like we've seen Trout do for for so long, then I, I think it's going to be tough to deny him, even if he has someone on his team like uh, Rendon, who maybe steals some of the vote a bit. But David Fletcher's up there too. But to decipher... Who is the best of, of that group? It's tough. And, and Bieber is so much better than everybody else pitching-wise that this is the one year that I, I, I think you have enough people at least listening so now you can start to build your case. Now, I talked about the difference in, in, in value, let's say, for a position player who gets a chance at every single game to try to win it versus a pitcher that every time he takes them out, he has the greatest chance of anybody to decide what happens in that game. And, and wins above replacement takes that into account. You know, it's a stat that builds over time. So you can sort of compare the two. And the fact that he is so much higher than everybody else, at least over at Fangraphs, I, th- I think that's a good starting place to try to build your resume. And another thing, if you want to start to look at the win value added in the games that they're participating in, you could pull up win probability added over at Fangrass, and of course Bieber's leading the way there for pitchers at 2.58. The next closest to him, as far as starting pitchers goes, at 1.78 down at Lance Lynn. So that's a giant jump from one to two among starting pitchers. If you go over to batters, he would also lead batters in win probability if this is all one leaderboard. No one even in the American League is above two as far as win probability added. The closest being Kyle Tucker of the Astros, Brandon Lau, and you know, win probability added is is looking at the situations that guys are are performing in. If you give up a base hit, maybe the win probability drops down a little bit for a pitcher. If you give up runs, it drops down for your team. Or if you strike a guy out with the bases loaded, it adds some win probability to to you as well. It's another stat that builds up over time. So it can help you compare a guy that does only pitch once every fifth turn through the rotation. The position players are getting their chance too, and if Bieber's outperforming them despite the fact that he's appearing once every five days, doesn't that also give him uh, a little bit more to to add to the resume? Is that I am accomplishing this despite the fact that I don't appear every single day like the rest of these guys? Absolutely. You know, it's disappointing that we don't get to see him try to keep this up for 30 restarts or however many many he would have in a normal season um you know it's like i thought the best example of his season and maybe why he deserves this conversation was in his start against the brewers you know he he had to labor through the fourth and the fifth innings right as some people said that this guy's a stiff like he can't even get through the (laughs) the middle innings without uh, throwing a lot of pitches um 
you know, he loads the bases. He strikes out Keston Hira, who's been on fire. And then he's got Yelich. And, like, he was at the 100-pitch mark. You knew it was going to be his last batter. And the Indians, if that's any other starting pitcher on the mound, they've got someone warmed up and ready to go in the bullpen to come in to face, you know, one of the top few hitters in baseball, right? Um, Bieber threw Yelich uh, eight curveballs in their three encounters on Sunday. Struck him out the first time. I think he ended up walking the second time. Struck him out the third time, obviously. But of those eight curveballs, Yelich swung and missed at five of them. And I think they were all like in the dirt. Like They all bounced. He just could not help himself. And with the bases loaded and it down to a, a two-to-one game in the fifth inning with two outs, he just threw him curveball, curveball again, and he swung and missed for strike two and strike three. He just knew it was coming, couldn't help himself. It just looks that good and it's it's like you know I asked Shane the other day I was like you know last year at this time you knew you were a big leaguer like you had finally you know the all-star game stuff happened you had proven that you were here to stay but like nobody considered him an ace nobody you wouldn't turn to him in game one of a series you wouldn't he's not the type of guy who would go to the mound and you'd be like yep I know the Indians are winning today and so like the evolution that has had to take place and take place quickly because, you know, it's been 40 games. It's not like this has happened over the course of six months of games. It's just incredible because he can do whatever he wants on the mound and he's in command. And if you're just watching him, if you're another player on the field, like, you know, it, it's, it's hard to describe and there's no statistic for it, but like there is something that happens where it's just like a switch is flipped and all of a sudden... Everybody on the field knows Bieber is the best player on that field and that he's going to, you know, he's going to be in control of that chess match. I feel like it happens in in the NBA too where like everybody on the court knows LeBron is the best player on the court and he's going to take matters into his own hands and he's going to have a say in in whatever happens, right? And I just felt like like Yelich who is an MVP, he is like one of the top players in the sport. Like, he looked like a rookie at the plate facing Bieber in such a critical situation. There was that, I, rem- I can remember it distinctly, that, that happened with Corey Kluber, where you went from watching a guy that, eh, it's got decent stuff, you don't really know if he's going to be more than a mid-rotation guy, and then he, he made that jump in his evolution to being the clear-cut ace of the staff, and you just knew that you were going to get down to business when he saw him on the mound. He looks in control. He looks like the leader of the staff. And when you watch him, he just gives off a different, there's just a different presence about him. You know that something special is taking place when that guy is pitching. And Bieber has crossed that line. Absolutely. Even more so for me when you, when he, you entered this year and it was happening in spring training when you just saw him on the mound, he looked in control. He looked like a leader. He looked like the ace. And now when you watch him pitch, tell that to Hiram Boyd, but go on, (laughs) you, you watch him pitch and, and no one is confused as to how he's doing it. Everyone knows he is tremendous. He's got great stuff, pinpoint command, and he's got the mentality to to outsmart you as well. And I maybe that goes overlooked too, just to how how good he is at mixing the pitches and, and being confident in what he throws. 
it makes it possible for him to to get guys looking foolish. Even when he's behind in the count, you get guys swinging at stuff that they never should. He absolutely has has crossed that threshold, as we've talked about many times on this podcast. And for him to to even legitimately be in this MVP conversation is partially on him in, is being incredible. And of course, part of it is just this weird season. He's going to need to keep this level up for the entire season. He cannot drop off at all. He, he has to finish with that sparkling ERA and he has to be heads and tails above everybody in war, in win probability, so that you can start to build that narrative even from a, an analytical standpoint. He just turned 25. <laughs> like He's younger than Blisak. He's younger than Carrasco and Plutko and Clevenger and Bauer. and um, It's crazy. And he's at the top of his profession. I mean, how about... Were you at the top of your profession at 25? (laughs) I almost made a joke that I'm not going to. Uh, Just looking at the the strikeout rates, top five starting pitchers in the American League. Carrasco at 29.2 strikeout percentage. Kenta Maeda at 30.9%. Garrett Cole, 32.9%. Lucas Giolito, 34.9%. Shane Bieber, 42.9%. That's the strikeout. That's like a Chapman, peak Craig Kimbrell type stuff yeah, right there. Yeah, stuff that you would expect from a reliever, not necessarily a starter. Another part of his of his evolution, too, is, is seeing him hone some of, of his offerings and think about, you know, what goes with this? What would pair well with with this particular pitch and, and start to build on new pitches and, you know, introduce cutters into the mix and, and just do things that you would expect a guy at the age of 30 to start to do when, he, you know, his, his craft starts to enter the decline phase. Nope, this guy's still on the upward trend. And he's thinking about from the cerebral aspect of how, how he goes about being a, an even better pitcher when he still has the stuff to back up. Uh, probably going out with even less than what he is uh, thrown at the hitters and, and being successful. Yeah, it's it's a good spot to be in if you're the Indians. I mean, we can gripe about the the outfield and and we have, yeah, um, and we can you know you can question whether it was the most prudent move to deal Bauer, Kluber, and Clevenger, and when they did. However, you look at this rotation and you say, okay, well Bieber is still pre-arb. McKenzie has made three starts. Plesak, I think, has a year of service time, maybe. Zavali is right there. I mean, like, you've got those four guys plus, you know, those still in the pipeline. (laughs) Okay. That that Um, tells you when you talk about starting pitching in the Indians, the heavens open up. Oh, they're just bringing the thunder with their rotation. (laughs) And I think, um, I mean, it's... It's a good spot to be in. Like, they have this rotation. I know Carrasco is the outlier with being 33 and, and making a decent chunk of change. But um, this rotation's in a good spot for a long time. It's going to be interesting to see, you know, where they go from here. You know, how do you maybe get Logan Allen to, into the mix? What yeah. do you do with Scott Moss? What do you do with, with some of those guys who are rising um, yeah, I mean, I told you, how, I'm excited Cal to Quantrill. see, exactly, Cal yeah. Quantrill, I'm excited to see what they could do with an offseason in their pitching lab, and to see what, what I mean, he, he already has great stuff, we can see, and he's got good velocity, and we talked about some of the similarities maybe between him and Plesak, so he's another guy, it's like, man, maybe just add him to the, the pitching factory 
assembly line, and they're going to build another ace starting pitcher. I don't put anything past them when it comes to 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 their pitching capabilities. Offensively, many questions about their their ability to develop hitters. They haven't consistently been able to do that. But pitching-wise, I know it's tough sometimes watching this team and through all of their shortcomings and their inability or, or a desire to not spend and all the things that drive you nuts as an Indians fan. I hope we can all take a step back and appreciate what we're watching with this, this pitching because it is absolutely incredible. Yeah, I'm still waiting for like Savali and Plesak to have growing pains, right? I mean, I think you see it. We haven't seen it from Plesak this year. You see it with Savali once in a while, but even like a, a rough start for those guys is like, you know, six innings, three or five innings, three runs, seven hits, something like that. I mean, it's, it's, it's remarkable. Um, <laughs> it's something that other teams that don't have pitching are overpaying for at the trade deadline. To have those sorts of performances step in, we, we joked about uh, the Jarrett Wright debut game in 97. They were so desperate for pitching. I think he gave up five runs in five innings in that, and he walked off to a standing ovation because they were just so excited that somebody <laughs> pitched through five innings. And now uh, I, I am seeing tweets that are, are people are upset when Bieber has some traffic in the fourth and fifth inning, wondering what's wrong. Perhaps something that's been wrong with a member of the Indians' bullpen, we, we can thank ourselves for James Karinchak we said for two weeks in a row when is this guy going to have that hiccup and now he's had several of them in a row so I guess you could just put that on us because we spoke it into existence I mean that's it was bound to happen especially since I said on this podcast that I had a fun feature story about him coming <laughs> um, I've had too much experience with like writing a feature story about a player who gets cut the morning of the, the day the story is supposed to be published or, you know, they give up a grand slam in extra innings and I had a story all scheduled and ready to go the next morning. It's, so I should know better. Um, but, you know, you, you prefer to, to run a story when a guy, especially if it's, if it's a, I don't want to say a positive story, but like a, you know, just like an insightful human feature on a guy, you, you don't want it to, you don't want all the comments to then just be like, well, this guy sucks, so I don't care about his, the time he rescued a baby from a burning building. How about uh, you rescue a few base runners from the bases, huh? Yeah, that should have been expected. You know, I, but that's the thing. It's like, for us to just, for this team to have no hiccups with its pitching all season with anybody yeah. um, was going to be impossible. It, it's incredible the way this bullpen is. Is, I mean, even like Dominic Leone comes in on Sunday, and I think everyone was scratching their heads like, man, is the bullpen really like that beaten down that they've got to turn to this guy in the seventh inning of a somewhat close game? And, and he delivered. He hasn't been very good this season. Um, no, but I think they it just, seems like they've fallen in love with the strikeouts there, and yeah, they're hoping and that they can get something out of that guy. It just seems like whoever they turn to has worked. I mean, they in the right situation. I mean, I know he's had some some rough out well rough, but I know he's had some some outings here recently that haven't been great. But even Phil Maton has been a trusted reliever for Sandy Alomar to go to. <laughs> I was not expecting that. I mean, he's a guy that we've talked about as having this fantastic spin rate. I mean, hell, before the year you anointed him as the random Indian of the day, <laughs> <laughs> and and now he's pitching in seventh and eighth innings, key situations for this team. It's. A lot of situations, you know, we talked about before the year that they're in the bullpen, they're going to have to be some guys that would step up. 
And it's not that they couldn't do it. It's just that they were unproven in those situations. And to their credit, they who who out there has really been brutally bad? I mean, even even Leon has they they've had some outings where you see some encouraging things and you see the strikeouts. It's not like they have, you know, how many, how many times do they put somebody in the game? That's just a gas can. And, and that's the other thing too, is we talked about the rotation, but the, the bullpen next year, I don't foresee a way for Brad hand to be on this team next year at $10 million. I don't know if that would be declining the option or picking it up and trading him. I'm, I'm guessing the first, but, um, but you think about Karen you get class a back, you've got Maton Wickren, um, you know, they've got some kids at the alternate site, Kyle Nelson and Nick Sandlin, who have been waiting their turn, who should be major league ready. You've got Cam Hill, you know, Anthony Ghost is still so intriguing. Um, that's a lot of, and I'm not saying this to side with ownership or anything like that, but in, in terms of roster construction, that's a lot of really good, cheap talent. And that's the key to things here. Yeah, uh, I mean, there's there's a there's proof over in the National League that you can both spend money and be really good at development and finding guys that are cheap and <laughs> marrying the two and having an outstanding roster like the the Los Angeles Dodgers. You mentioned Brad Hand. We were texting about this a little bit last night. I do find it absolutely interesting that if you follow the the arc of Brad Hand. Part of it, it's what happened last year. But even if you focus on this year, every time he comes into the game, there's a sense that the Indians going to lose the game or that he's going to get knocked around. There's just not a lot of faith right now in the guy if you just follow the narrative and you didn't pay attention to the numbers. And if you took the other end of that spectrum and you said, I'm not going to watch this guy pitch at all. I'm not going to pay attention to Twitter. I'm going to be halfway across the country and just check in after the game and check in every single week to see how guys are performing. You would look at Brad Hand's numbers, and you would think he's having another all-star caliber year. The ERA, 263. The FIP at 212. Now, you might look at the XFIP and, and see 472 and see trouble on the horizon. But, I mean, if you're looking at the ERA and the FIP, you would already say, he looks like he's pitching all right. And then you go over to... to Baseball savant, you look at some of the StatCast data, the expected batting average is in the 97th percentile. His expected WOBA, these are things based on exit velocity and launch angle, in the 83rd percentile, well above average, pitching very, very solidly, if not well. Strikeout percentage is in the 77th percentile. And even in the expected ERA, which again comes back to the exit velocity, the launch angle, how guys are hitting him. He's in the 78th percentile and expected ERA, too. And he's having a better year in that measurement than he was last year, and it's about the same as where he was at in 2018. It is really a fascinating case study to see the, the two ends of that spectrum. If you only paid attention to the data, never watched the game, you would say Brad Hand is perfectly fine in the ninth inning. And if you watched the game and didn't pay attention to the stats, you would think, oh, my God, it's only a matter of time. <laughs> Yeah, I, I still worry about his fastball velocity because it's it's clearly down. It's down to 91 miles an hour this year, which, you know, it's it was 93 last year, but even more so. I mean, it, it was it was like 94, and then he just fell off a cliff in August. I I, I don't know. I, I I look at his last 12 outings and I see okay, 11 and a third 
innings, no earned runs, only six hits, three walks, 12 strikeouts. Like, it's all good. Um, <laughs> yeah, like, on what planet are you saying that's the guy that you can't give innings to? It's weird. It's, it's just like, do I'm your, not, I'm not are your saying eyes deceiving you? I'm not I saying it's wrong that you, you would have those feelings. Uh, I, I would be lying if I, didn't, if I said I didn't have those same senses when he came into the game. I see the, yeah. the velocity where it's at. I think it's important that he maintains the, you know, even if the, the fastball is declining in velocity, he has to just maintain the gap between the fastball velocity and the slider velocity. And, you know, that's kind of maintained. We've seen some outings where he comes out throwing like 92, 93, and, and it looks better. And then he comes back and he'll have another game where he averages like 90-91. So it's not it's clearly not back, probably will never be back, but can he still be an effective pitcher? I think he's showing that he still can be. He just maybe is not the uh the Andrew Miller-esque pitcher that he was in 2017 where he was just unhittable. Right. And he's also not the Bob Wickman, Joe Borowski-esque closer that I think a lot of fans want to uh compare him to when he comes into a game and you grab the nearest pack of uh, <laughs> Joe Camels. Um, yeah, I, I, look, you could do worse, right? I mean, there. It's crazy. I, I see if I can pull it up really quick. But I was looking at bullpen um, rankings the other day, and I think it was it might have been Boston or Colorado or Arizona. Some team has like a bullpen ERA of eight, and I just it was incredible. Let's see. The worst bullpen in baseball belongs to, drumroll please, the Phillies, 704 team ERA out of their bullpen. And, like, it's not just them. The Rockies, 678. The Mariners, 627. The Red Sox, 601. Three more teams north of five. A ton of teams in, like, the 450 to 495 range. So, yeah, like, the Indians bullpen ranked 272 ERA, third in baseball. Um, and there's a huge gap between third and fourth. I mean, it's it's you could do a lot worse, I think, right now than having Brad Hand in the ninth inning, especially because like I think part of it too is we were comparing him to Karinchek. People were like Karinchek should be the closer, and besides, we those who listen to the podcast are smarter than that and know that you know you don't want to just pigeonhole Karinchek into the ninth inning every game. You want him pitching in the highest leverage situation against the most difficult batters. But also, I think the fact that Karen Cech has struggled a little bit maybe allows people to have better perspective about hand because you're not comparing him to some, you know, cyborg who strikes out two-thirds of every hitters he faces <laughs> and never gives up a hit. Yeah, true. Um, and I, I think there was always a, a belief, a, a good one, that Karen Cech was going to have it. it to, to pitch as well as he did and never have any hiccups? I mean, come on. You had, I mean, just a couple of days ago, the Brewers came in here with their tremendous bullpen, and they found a way to give it up in a game with, with Josh Hader getting beat by Oscar Mercado and Cesar Hernandez. So it does happen. You uh, like even, Devin Williams' changeup, by the way? Whew. That, that would be a fun bullpen, at least the back end of a bullpen to watch. Um, and guys that do it in so many different ways. Um, a lot of fun, but they have a, an issue similar to the Indians where it's like, where are the runs going to come from tonight? Um, but the Indians, to their credit, take two or three from the Brewers, and they head into this week, positioned a half game back of Chicago. They've got the second-best run diff in, in the American League. And you wrote about it. This would be, if this was a normal year, this would be 
a hell of a lot of fun to watch these three teams, the Indians, White Sox, and Twins, duke it out for the top spot and, and maybe fight for a wild card slot. But thanks to this year and expanded playoffs, there's not a, a lot of intrigue here, at least when it comes to who's going to make the playoffs and who's going to get left out. Yeah, that's like 2020, the cruelest thing it's done, I think, is actually give us the one thing we've been wanting for years. <laughs> And that's like a tightly competitive AL Central race. Not just between the Indians and Twins from last year, although that was pretty much over by like September 10th. But three-team race, separated by one and a half games on Labor Day, three weeks to go. Oh my God, the drama, the twists and turns, and it means nothing. Because all three teams are going to make the playoffs. There's no real home field advantage. Everybody's probably going to be in a bubble anyway. And it's... There's, it's, it's like a March Madness bracket. Congrats, you made the Sweet 16, <laughs> and you know you have basically a 50-50 chance of surviving the first round coin flip, a three-game series with another team that's probably really good too. And we don't know exactly. Like this is one point I made in my article was like, okay, if you win the division, maybe you're like the two seed, and if you lose, you know maybe you end up being the four seed. Well, do we really know that the seven seed is, is it really advantageous to face the seven seed instead of the five? Like, do we know through 60 games that the twins are better than the Yankees? Like, I, I don't know. The Yankees like, aren't better than a lot of teams right now. They're right struggling. Now, yeah, but. And that, that is robbing us of, of what could potentially be some very concerned fan bases in New York, in Houston. Houston's lost four in a row. I think they lost some more pitching going on the, the IL. Um, so sort of like the Yankees having their problems that way. Uh, if this was a typical year, you, you, you would, we'd be having long conversations, and some of them are still happening, but you'd be having long conversations about teams that are supposed to be good and are beat up by, by injury or just not performing well. you think, are they going to get left out of the postseason? But... Thanks to the expanded playoffs, uh, pretty much anybody that's any good is going to get in. National League's a different story. There's some competitive races there. But the American League, it's, you can draw a pretty clear line between all the teams that should be in and all the teams that, that should not. Yeah, and it's, it's funny from the Dodgers' perspective because they've been this juggernaut for, I don't know, seven, eight years now? Yeah, but and they haven't won a World Series. They but they Right. Oh, I can relate with HBD. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, But they, you know, they're... It's so hard to differentiate yourself in a 60-game season as a team. Just we thought that the standings would be so compressed and like maybe the best team would have like 38 wins, something like that. And they're going to just steamroll everybody. And their run differentials wild. And um, They are far and away the best team in the league right now. And they're going to have a three-game series against some plucky underdog like Cincinnati who's got really good starting pitching or some, someone like that. And, like, they could very well lose that three-game series and go home immediately. Like, it's just the season. <laughs> it's forgiving in some senses and just so cruel in others. Yeah, can you imagine first round, Dodgers and Marlins. <laughs> and the Marlins just not supposed to be there and unseat the, the team right now that has almost 100 runs in the positive compared to the American League where the top team is the White Sox with 53 and the Indians at plus 51. So that just shows you how much better they've been than everybody else. Um, but uh, but no no epic uh, conclusion to this year for the, the American League Central Division. It is going to look 
like the the NBA playoffs. Like, do, do the Cavs have? I don't even know what the hell the division's called. <laughs> what is the division called that the Cavs play in? Do they have banners for that hanging up at it's, the? It's, yeah, it's the NBA Central Division. Is it the Eastern Central Conference? Central Division. Is I think so. Central Division champs. They've Indiana, got Chicago, hanging. Detroit, and. Uh... Sure. Oh God. Sounds right to me. Are you ready for a random Indian of the day? Someone else. Do you have one for me? I have one. Oh, I pulled one up for you just because I forgot. And what if it's the same guy? I hope it is. It would be amazing. <laughs> oh. So this one is, I think it'll be pretty, if not extremely difficult, but he does have a tie to someone uh, that is notable, so it makes it maybe easier to guess. I don't know. We'll see. This man, who is 44 years old today. Oh, the Milwaukee Bucks, by the way, are uh, in the Central Division. Pitched for the Indians in 2002 and 2003. He's 40 years old today? 44. He was at the age 44. of 26 and 27 when he uh, made his appearances with the Indians. That, for his career, was it. He only appeared with the Indians in only parts of those two seasons in which he made 19 appearances. His best stretch came in 2002 with the Indians when he had a 3.13 ERA in relief in 23 innings. Cliff Bartosh. <laughs> no. No. Um who sounds a lot like the character Hawkeye from the Avengers. No. So he, Is that a movie? He finished in his career with a 462 ERA over 19 career appearances. Finished four games, 25 and a third innings, 18 walks, 26 strikeouts, career FIP of 470. Francisco Crusetta. No. He was drafted by the Texas Rangers in the fourth round of the 97 draft. Uh, he was out of the Georgia Institute of Technology. So they're nerdy. So a pitcher who wore glasses. <laughs> he, he didn't wear glasses, at least not in the, the picture that I have at Baseball Reference. So he was drafted by the Rangers, and then he was traded by the Rangers to the Indians. In 2001, December. Aaron Mayette. No. No. Uh, and then he was uh, a free agent, signed back with the Indians, released, signed with the Braves, signed with the Yankees, signed with the Reds, signed with the Royals, but never appeared with any of those teams ever again. It was only Ricardo Rodriguez. 2002 and 2003 with the Indians. No, not Ricardo Rodriguez. Chad Peranto. No. I almost picked him, but no. I guess the best clue that I can offer you is that he was traded by the Texas Rangers to the Cleveland Indians for John Rocker. Really? Mm-hmm. I did not realize that the Indians traded Rocker. I can't. I can't understand why they would have wanted to move on from him. <laughs> December of 2001. The Rangers traded this man, oh, man to the Indians for John Rocker. That's the best clue I can give you. I don't think I can give anything better than that. Well, what's his hometown? <laughs> he was... Uh, I don't know. 
I just keep seeing Georgia Institute of Technology in Atlanta, Georgia. Oh, he, here we go. Pensacola, Florida was his high school. He went to Booker T. Washington High School. Did he, so he was, so he went to school in Atlanta. Did he know Rocker? <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't know. Oh, man. I feel like if he spent multiple years on the team, I should know this. That's uh, lefty or righty? He was a righty. Is his first name David? Yes. Wait, really? Yes. David Lee? Nope. David... <sighs> Who am I thinking of? Hey, I got the first name right. That should be... <laughs> Just to be the hard part. Just the shot in the dark. You nailed it. I was thinking, I don't know who I'm thinking of, David or Danny or something. David. He went by Dave. Dave. Yes. Uh, the police are coming to arrest me for <laughs> not uh, being able to get this. I, I don't, I'm stumped. Shares a name with a politician. Dave Obama. No. 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 Dave. Do you give up? Yeah. It's Dave Elder. Who? Dave Elder, of course. Who was I thinking of? I don't know. No idea. Was there a David Lee? There was a David. Yeah. Okay. I was thinking of David Lee. Why I was thinking of this individual, I have no idea. Because he pitched for the Indians in 2003 and 04 and had a 675 ERA in 12 innings. Why would I remember that? But Dave Elder, huh? Yep. And the Texas Rangers giving up Dave Elder acquired John Rocker who then went on to appear in 30 games with the Rangers before being uh, released and signing with Tampa Bay and only making one appearance with them in 2003, and then that was it. But in 2002, for Dave Elder, they acquired John Rocker, who gave them an ERA of 666. That's so perfect. Have you know, a John good Rocker night, everybody. <laughs> John Rocker went on to star on Survivor. Did you know that? Uh, I think I have a faint memory of that being the case. I vaguely recall watching that season, and... He tried to keep his identity a secret at first, and he seemed like such a like he was a nice, hardworking guy. The first few <laughs> episodes, and then I think someone figured out who he was, and then it just it was derailed so quickly. And it, things uh, were going so well until he fired that coconut left-handed at ninety-nine miles per hour to the backstop. Exactly. You can subscribe to the show, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, and of course Apple Podcasts, where we do appreciate the five-star reviews. A couple of you have left some five-star reviews lately. We do appreciate that. Helps us rise up the rankings. Helps other Tribe fans find the podcast. And, of course, you can find us on Twitter at TJZoopy, at Zach Meisel, at Selby is Godcast. Any parting words? Uh, no, I was told it was, you know, this rain. We're recording this on Monday, and it's, I don't know about where you're at since you live in a different state, but... Um, yeah, it's we're actually experiencing uh, spring here because we're in the other hemisphere. <laughs> I thought it was not going to uh, storm past like eight a.m. this morning, and it's we're recording this. It's the middle of the afternoon now, and it's it's still going. And um, I thought I would have a quiet 
time to record a podcast, and yet, uh, or they say God is bowling. That's what that noise is. Yes. When you hear thunder, and um, you know, hopefully, uh, it doesn't knock out a Labor Day Indians game, and then they'll be forced to play a doubleheader later this week. Hopefully, we get a game in. Yeah, but then you get a seven inning game, and it seems everyone loves it just as oh, much as they love true. the extra inning rule, which I think I've won you over. Yeah, we'll have to talk about that in an upcoming yeah. podcast. I need to see one more example of it of course, before just I can that one confirm. game sample size will change everything. We're out of here. See ya. <laughs>